Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with episode number 165 of Scripture Uncovered, which I've titled The Beatitudes. Jesus was a master teacher, and his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 is one of his most memorable teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is a perfect example of expository teaching, and it consists of four perfectly balanced sections. Number one, the Beatitudes, a clever and memorable introduction. That is chapter five, verses two through 16. Number two, six propositions that exceed the law. Chapter five, verses 17 through 48. Number three, six concrete actions to implement the law. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 7 at verse 6. And finally, number 4, a dramatic call to action. Chapter 7, verses 7 through 29. Now, I'd like to devote time today to the Beatitudes, the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount. And we should note several things about this clever and memorable introduction. First, it consists of nine statements, the first eight being the Beatitudes proper and the ninth being a summary statement. Each of the nine statements begins with the very same word in Greek, makarios, or blessed. The Hebrew would be esher, as in Psalm 1, blessed indeed is the man. The Aramaic, Jesus' native language, would be barak, and the Latin would be beatus, from which we get the term beatitudes. Starting each of the eight beatitudes with the same word is a rhetorical device called anaphora, and each statement employs parallelism. Blessed is A, for they shall be B. Blessed is C, for they shall be D, and so on. Add sound repetition to that, and you get very memorable statements. And notice, too, that each of the eight statements is counterintuitive. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus' listeners would surely have thought, blessed are the rich in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, look carefully at the verb tenses Jesus uses. We have one the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And number eight, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. A repetition framing two through seven. And it's present tense. Next, we have number two, they shall be comforted. Number three, they shall possess the land. Number four, they shall have their fill. Number five, they shall obtain mercy. Number six, they shall see God, and number seven, they shall be called children of God. So Beatitudes one and eight are present realities, whereas Beatitudes two through seven are promised future realities. On one level, the Beatitudes speak of a downtrodden people who may be poor in spirit and persecuted, but who nevertheless have God with them. And their true home 
is the kingdom of heaven, a present reality. Life may be difficult now, but in the future, they will be comforted. The land will be theirs. They will be satisfied, shown mercy, see God, and be called children of God. Now that's certainly one way to understand the Beatitudes, viewing them not as a moral or social code of ethics, but as a statement of current reality, of God's people living under the yoke of both Roman occupation and religious oppression, and of one day that dual yoke being lifted from them. Such an understanding, of course, is not limited solely to first century Palestine, but to any time and any people living under political and religious oppression. But the ninth beatitude, the capstone to Jesus' clever and memorable introduction, suggests a more personal, more spiritual reading. Listen. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely utter every kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now Jesus never said a single word about the Roman occupation. Rather, he aimed his fiercest criticisms at his own people and at their religious leaders, exactly as the prophets of old did. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the rest. Jesus never got down and dirty into the muck and the mire of worldly politics. Instead, speaking of the kingdom of God, both within and without. So let's probe deeper into the Beatitudes and seek to find a more personal understanding of them, working through them one by one and noticing, very importantly, that they are sequential, one follows the first, then the second, then the third, in sequence. So we begin. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we noted earlier, Jesus' statement is entirely counterintuitive, meant to catch his audience's attention. Notice that it's not blessed are the poor, as we have it in Luke chapter 6, verse 20, but blessed are the poor in spirit, pneuma, in the sense of one's innermost being, one's spirit or soul. Now, I should point out from personal experience that there is absolutely nothing blessed about being poor. I've been poor, and I've been not. And I have to tell you, not is considerably better. Now we read in Proverbs 20, verses 8 through 9, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Ah, who is the Lord? or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. The first step toward God is recognizing one's own interior poverty, 
the dreadful emptiness in one's own heart that only God can fill. Indeed, you cannot take a single step toward a Savior until you recognize your need to be saved. So we continue. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who mourn, pentheo, includes bereavement, of course, but it goes far deeper than that. Recognizing one's own interior poverty is one thing. Mourning over it is quite another. One can recognize that interior poverty and accept it as an unavoidable existential reality. Try to fill it with distractions, possessions, and entertainment. Or face it head on, staring into the abyss and mourning over the utter emptiness in one's own heart. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. The meek, praus, should not conjure up the 1924 comic strip character Casper Melchtoast, one who speaks softly and gets hit with a big stick. No, we read in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, that Moses was very meek above all men which were upon the face of the earth, the meekest man who ever lived. Yet it was Moses who confronted Pharaoh, the most powerful man of the ancient world, and demanded on behalf of God, let my people go. And when the Israelites worshiped the golden calf, it was Moses who rallied the Levites and went through the camp killing 3,000 apostate Israelites in Exodus 32, verse 28. Now that, my friends, is no Casper milk toast. The meek, the praus, in this instance, are those who recognize the vast emptiness in their own heart, mourn over it, and recognize that the proper posture before God is flat on one's face in utter humility and submission before God Almighty, creator of the universe, the one who created us, who breathed into us the breath of life, and against whom we have sinned grievously. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Once recognizing our interior emptiness, mourning over it and taking a proper position before God, we then desire desperately to be in a right relationship with God, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be viewed by God as acceptable and pleasing in His sight. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Once viewed by God as acceptable and pleasing in His sight, we then have an obligation to be merciful to others who are in the same position as we were, others who may not yet recognize the root cause of their emptiness, much less have a longing for God. They may well mock God and hold you and me in contempt as pitiful, ignorant fools, dreaming of pie in the sky when we die. Our attitude should not be one of contempt and hostility toward them, but one of mercy, for they are now where we once were. 
we know how they feel. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the clean of heart, or better, the pure of heart. On one level, it pictures a vine pruned clean in order to bear abundant fruit. We all need to have extraneous junk removed from our lives, the objects and thoughts we've accumulated in an attempt to fill our emptiness. Sometimes, more often than not, we have to clean house to make room for God. On another level, it speaks of motive. Why do we want an intimate relationship with God? Do we desire it for what we'll get in return? If so, we're nothing more than spiritual mercenaries. Or do we love God for who he is, not for what we get? And that's a question we all need to ponder. And it's a complicated question that we must probe carefully or we're apt to settle for a very superficial answer. C.S. Lewis addressed this very question in a sermon that he preached in the Church of St. Mary the Virgin at Oxford on June 8, 1941. It was published a few months later as The Weight of Glory in the journal Theology, volume 43, 1941, pages 263 to 274. And it's been reprinted and anthologized many times since. In his sermon, Lewis draws an analogy between a schoolboy learning Greek and the Christian life. In the beginning, learning Greek is a difficult task with very few rewards. I can vouch for that, save for decent marks on weekly exams or praise from parents or teachers. The Greek learning schoolboy, who struggles with the drudgery of grammar, syntax, and rhetoric, could never imagine the sublime satisfaction of reading for sheer enjoyment the Gospels in their original Greek. Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey, or the tragedies of Sophocles. In relation to heaven, the Christian is in much the same position as the schoolboy. Those who have attained eternal life and enjoy the beatific vision of God experience it not as a reward for their earthly efforts, but as the very consummation and completion of their earthly existence. As with the schoolboy, says Lewis, poetry replaces grammar, gospel replaces law, longing transforms obedience as gradually as the tide lifts a grounded ship. I love that example. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. The word peacemakers in no way implies pacifism. Rather, it refers to those who actively bring conflict to an end. It's the core principle of St. Augustine's position in favor of a just war, a war that brings about a greater good or a greater peace. On a more personal level, blessed are the peacemakers 
follows the sequential movement of the Beatitudes themselves. A person who recognizes his own interior poverty, who desperately longs to be right with God, who positions himself in a proper relationship with God, and who does so for the right reasons, will strive to bring inner peace to his own life and to the lives of those around him or her. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last of the eight Beatitudes naturally follows the previous seven. The person who embodies the Beatitudes will invariably be persecuted. Dioko, a prolonged and causative form of the primary verb dio, to flee or pursue. The values of this world stand in stark contrast to the values expressed by Jesus in the Beatitudes. To understand this, we need only consider Jesus' fate at the hand of the Jewish religious leaders, the crowds on Passover pilgrimage to Jerusalem in AD 32, and the Roman authorities themselves. For a great many people, Jesus evoked scorn, fear, and fierce hatred. It was true then, it's still true today. So blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely utter every kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verses 11 and 12 offer a concluding statement to the eight Beatitudes. If one truly embodies the Beatitudes, the world will insult you, persecute you, and falsely utter all kinds of evil against you. That can happen if one follows any controversial path. But Jesus adds a qualifier, because of me. And that qualifier makes all the difference. And if that's the case, then you may indeed rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Now the grammar here is a little tricky. Our NAB, New American Bible Translation, places the reward, misthos, a nominative singular, in the future by following it with will be. Whereas a literal translation should read the reward of you is great, or maybe better, your reward is great. A present tense rendering. And that's an important difference. For as we noted above, the first and eighth Beatitudes reflect one's present position in the kingdom of heaven. Whereas the second through seventh Beatitudes reflect a future promise. So although we may be insulted, persecuted, and slandered because of Christ, we experience such contempt as current residents in the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that is our authentic home. Look, folks, we don't live in this world. We're just pilgrims passing through, pilgrims charged with being ambassadors of Christ. So even though we may suffer insult, persecution, and slander on our pilgrimage of life, all the while, we are honored by our fellow citizens who are at home. 
Thank you for listening, folks. I'll be back again soon. Bye-bye now.